Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne, and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. The word apocalypse means to reveal, to show, to make manifest. John's revelation is written in the language of apocrypha. And yet for most it does not reveal and show, it hides and conceals. Which makes it vulnerable to people who do not understand its symbolism, who try to convince you that they do, who string together images that are completely false and erroneous. You see, those of us who are in the mainline denominations who built the great universities and seminaries of the world know that Revelation barely got into the Bible. When our mothers and fathers were trying to figure out how many scrolls should be included as holy writ, the book of Revelation is number 27 out of 27 and barely got in. 500 years ago, when the reformers were teaching common folk to read Holy Writ, they were much troubled by this book. Martin Luther 500 years ago said, this book is theologically inadequate. Zwingli said, this is no biblical book. And John Calvin wrote commentaries on the first 26 books of the Christian scriptures and ignored Revelation altogether. So why do some churches and some preachers and some folks who come riding into Tulsa and set up seminars in one of our hotels for a Friday, Saturday and Sunday and charge you $800 or $1,000 to hear them string together misconceptions draw so many people? Why? It's because most people don't understand what the book is trying to say. Our main line great seminaries and our very best professors do understand. And what they understand is that John was limited by his own time and place. He's writing to his generation. He believes Jesus is coming back next week or surely next month. Twice in this fifth chapter, he mentions the things above the earth on the earth below the earth. From the first chapter of Genesis to the 22nd chapter of Revelation, every writer in the Bible believed the earth was flat. All of them. If God wanted to reveal things about the earth, don't you think he would have said to them, guess what, the earth is not the center of the universe. The sun doesn't go around the earth every 24 hours. Instead, the Bible is not about astronomy, it's not about geology, it's not about geography, it's about theology, it's about God. 
And so you have a professor like Dr. Eugene Boring, who taught for so many years at Texas Christian University, TCU in Fort Worth, had a distinguished chair in New Testament studies who said, John's revelation has something to say to the church today, but it has no predictions about today. If God were going to whisper something to John about the year 2009, it wouldn't have been, there's going to be a Russian bear. There's going to be an organization called OPEC. They're going to find black liquid which they will use to fuel their factories and move their cars about the earth. He would have said, oh, what? To where? Why? And how? This book is not about any of that. It's a book about God. What can we learn about God from this book? And so all six Sundays, I'll be trying to help you know what we can learn about God from this book. Let's look at today. Today's text, chapter 5, scholars say, is a pivotal turning point in the whole book. Suddenly, all attention is focused on the one who sits on the throne. That would be God, of course. And what is in God's right hand? It's a scroll. Now, writing materials of long ago were more brittle than the ones we have today. Today, we can fold a piece of paper, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and mail it. In those days, if you folded something, it probably would break. So they didn't fold it. They rolled the materials. They rolled them, and when the last flap came over, that flap was sealed with blobs of wax. And the more important the document was, generally the more seals you would put on it, and each of the seals stamped with often a signet ring on the right hand of the person sending, or some official stamp. If that seal was tampered with, if that hardened wax broke, then you knew someone who wasn't supposed to read has had access to the material inside. So it's about who's worthy to come and break the seal and unfurl the scroll. So this begins with a scroll. It has seven seals. In John's work, seven represents wholeness, completeness, fullness. Seven days in the week, seven candles in the Jewish menorah. Seven means completeness. When he mentions Jesus in a few moments, he talks about he has seven horns. It means he's all-powerful. He has seven eyes. It means he sees everything. And seven seals means this one is really closed up completely. And a call goes out, who is worthy to break the seals and unroll the scroll? And that cry went out all over the earth, above the earth, on the earth, below the earth, no one worthy. No one. We're coming up on the fourth anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. The devastation wrecked by that hurricane on the city of New Orleans and its surroundings. And if you think back to what happened in the hours that followed, um, a scholar, professor from Oxford University, Dr. Timothy Ash, wrote an article of just days after that occurrence. It got republished in the Los Angeles Times. And in that article he said, the really important lesson is not how poorly organized FEMA was, or whether President Bush flew in early enough or not. The real story about Katrina is a reminder that civilization is a very thin wafer. Deprive most people of food, 
water, shelter, someone who's trying to maintain law and order, and that wafer breaks through. He wasn't the first to say something like that. Six weeks ago, Gail and I stood in the cell where Dr. Martin Niemuller was confined. A great Lutheran pastor who dared say from his pulpit that Adolf Hitler was a bad man, that Nazis were bad people and ought to be removed from office. He was arrested and sent straight to Sachsenhausen, which is about a 35-minute train ride north of Berlin. They put him into a solitary cell. In the middle of Sachsenhausen camp, there is one white building set apart from the others, right in the middle, but set apart, extra, extra precautions around it. Many of these solitary confinement, Pastor Niemöller was put in that cell for seven long weeks. He didn't know how long. He would say later that they gave him a little sip of water every day. They gave him a piece of stale bread every fourth day. They kept him there six weeks, 42 days and nights, completely blocked out of any light whatsoever. Finally decided he was not going to recant, that he wasn't willing to go back into his pulpit and say, I was wrong, made a mistake, I was having a bad day. But they didn't turn him loose. They kept him at Sachsenhausen. And then they sent him to Buchenwald. And after being in that horrible place, they finally sent him on to Dachau. They kept him in prison eight long years. He preached here at Boston Avenue Church in the 60s. And he said, civilization is such a thin veneer. We so quickly revert to that 99%. He didn't know that figure back then. 99% of us that is that ape, that great upland gorilla, that chimpanzee, that animal within us. We so quickly revert and forget, forget that we are children of God. Gail and I wanted to be in that cell where Martin Niemöller was. All these years later to say, we care. We care. It wasn't right what they did to you. And we're sorry. Those were cousins of ours. Our brothers and sisters of ours. At Flossenburg to stand in that very corner of the wall where... Dietrich Bonhoeffer was marched out one frightfully cold April morning, stripped of all his clothes and hanged with the Allies just two weeks from liberating the camp. There was no one, no one closer around, just two of us. But to say to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I'm sorry. What they did to you was not right. Because you preach that Hitler was a bad man, you preach that Nazism was a terrible thing and that they ought to be removed from power, those Nazis, what they did to you was not right. This beginning of chapter 5 says, we may not all be as bad as them, but to put it in Paul's words, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all of us. No one of us worthy to break the seals on the scroll. Number two, 
So John says, I began to cry bitterly. I cried bitterly. Why? Because we need to know what's in that scroll. We need to know what's in that scroll that God holds in his hand and no one of us is worthy to open it. So he wept. Joel Morgenstern reviews and previews movies for the Wall Street Journal. I discovered a long time ago that you need to read a reviewer who sees things like you do. You know, if somebody says, this is a terrific movie, and you're going to say, gee, that was the worst thing I've ever seen. That reviewer is not helping you. Well, Mr. Morgenstern, whom I do not know, but whom I've read for many years, sees movies the way I see them. And when Joel says, this is a good one, I know it's going to be good. I'm going to like it. If he says, forget this one, he's right. He recently reviewed a movie called Moon. It's about an astronaut. An astronaut who's been on the moon by himself for three years. Three years he's been up there by himself. He has a computer with him, a little robot, sort of like Hal in 2001, A Space Odyssey. He doesn't have to wonder what the little computer is feeling in any given moment. He has a little display screen and he either has a happy face or a sad face. He's happy about what's happening or he thinks things are going terribly wrong here. Sam gets sick, very sick, and then slowly recovers, only to discover he's not alone on the moon. There's someone else there. But Joe Morgenstern says the real questions in this movie are, who am I? Who put me here? Does my being here have any meaning whatsoever? I wept bitterly. We needed to see what's in the scroll. Number three. One of the elders said to me, stop crying. Quit weeping. The Lion of Judah has conquered. He is worthy to break the seals. You know where we first get that expression, the Lion of Judah? Have to go back into Genesis. Judah was one of the twelve sons of Jacob. Jacob fathered twelve sons by four different women. Not favored wife, handmaid of favored wife, handmaid of not favored wife, finally favored wife, birth two. Ended up with twelve. But just before he died, Jacob looked at one of them and said, Judah, you are my lion. You will be the strong one. You will take care of and fight for the others. And from that one came David, from that one came Solomon, from that one came Jesus of Nazareth. And so I turned and looked. I didn't see a lion. I saw a lamb. A lamb that had been slaughtered. I saw a lamb that had been slaughtered. I read six of the best scholars I know this week, and you know what they all said? Here in a few verses, John has looked right into the heart of Almighty God. God is the one who doesn't send the Lion of Judah. He sends the Passover Lamb. 
This is the first time John in his revelation calls Jesus the Lamb, but he'll do it 29 times before he gets through the Lamb, the Lamb. And it's why we sing just before we come to the table, O Lamb of God, that taketh away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. O Lamb of God, that taketh away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. O Lamb of God, that taketh away the sins of the world, grant us thy peace. Did you see that the winner of the Van Cliburn Piano Podcast, for the first time in its history, is a blind pianist. Twenty-year-old young man from Japan. Tsuji is his last name. Tsuji. Twenty years old, blind from birth. His mother said the first time she really knew he was paying close attention to music, they were singing Jingle Bells, and he climbed up on a piano bench with a little bit of help, and he played Jingle Bells. He was two. By the time he was eight, he was on stage. At ten, he played at a major musical festival in Osaka. How does one learn music if one is blind? He was taught Braille so he could read the notes for left hand and when he got all of those down then he could read the notes for right hand in braille and get those down and then try to put the two together now at twenty he has volunteers the paper said who read the notes to him and they tape it so that he can play them back again and again a note after note after note and when he gets the left hand then he listens and note after note after note for the right hand but of course you know some of these concertos can go 15-20 minutes he has to memorize everything there were hundreds who signed up for the Van Cliburn contest uh, out of hundreds 30 were finally flown into Fort Worth Texas they spent 17 grueling days they were Paired down from 30 to 12, from 12 to 6, and finally one was chosen. It was he. And a reporter asked him, I can understand how you can find your way to a piano with someone's helping you, and how you can play a piece from memory, but what about when you're playing with an orchestra? You cannot see the baton. And he said, I listen for the conductor's breathing. I listen for the conductor's breathing. Genesis says when God had created this wonderful little being, he took a deep breath and puffed into him his own ruach, and man became a living being. How closely are you listening? Some of these who do the most talking about revelation believe God sent the lamb the first time but by golly next time he'll send the lion but he isn't our best scholars say no that's not what John is saying he's saying you got a lamb the last time and you're going to get a lamb the next time when he comes back number four we have been ransomed to God by the blood of this lamb and made a kingdom and made a kingdom the kingdom of our Christ has become the kingdom of this world we pray week after week your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven
And now we're supposed to help make that happen. We're supposed to make that happen. God's will be done. God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Are you familiar with the name Lessing? L-E-S-S-I-N-G. Gotthold Ephraim Lessing. Born in 1729. Died 1781. Lived 52 years. Son of a minister who after college came to know a great Jewish thinker and teacher named Moses Mendelssohn. You would know Felix Mendelssohn, grandson of Moses. Moses Mendelssohn became a close friend to Lessing and Lessing couldn't quite put this together with what he was sometimes hearing that Christians alone hear the voice of God. Here was a great man whom he came to believe was also hearing the voice of God. And later he got to know some Muslims, some really outstanding ones, and knew they were claiming to be children of Abraham as Jews were claiming to be children of Abraham. And that Paul had told us, if we have faith in God like Abraham and Sarah, we're children of Abraham. Lessing wrote a poem where he has Nathan the Wise. Nathan, remember a great old prophet who set King David straight one time. Nathan the Wise tells a story about a man who had great faith in God and great compassion for all humans. He was given a ring to show that he was a man of great faith and great compassion. And that ring was passed down to his son and that to his son and that to his son. And generation after generation, here was a family who had great faith in God and great compassion for each other. And then there came a father who had three sons. And he loved them all the same amount. He loved them differently because they were different, but he loved them all the same amount. And when he came near his death, he didn't know what to do, which son would get the ring. So he called in the finest craftsman he had and asked him to make two more exactly like the first. But he didn't tell anybody. And when he knew he was dying, he called in one son after the other and gave to each one one of the rings. And each thought he had the ring until the father died. And when each one said, look what I have, they all had a ring and they looked exactly the same. So each claimed that the other two were imposters. Yours is not real, yours is not real, mine's the only real one. And finally things got so bad they went to a judge for him to decide. And he said, judging from your behavior, I'd say none of you has the ring. None of you has the ring. If you are convinced that you have the real one, then of course that will show itself in the fact that you become a great man of faith and a great man of compassion. And one day a judge greater than I am will decide which one of you had the right ring. Amen.